0: 53. The verse at the end of the video is our text tonight, Isaiah chapter 53. What is it about remembering someone's death that is so good? What is it about this special death? Why do we focus so much time and attention on Good Friday? Why so much attention given to one day on the calendar? Uh, The term Good Friday is only recognized in a few languages in our entire world. Uh, Etymologists say that the word good is likely an alteration uh, from the German word goddess, which means gods or holy. Other than the English and the Dutch language, we're only, we see that Good Friday, the term Good Friday isn't mentioned anywhere else in our society. Uh, Everywhere else today is called Holy Friday, not Good Friday. Uh, So what is it about, if it is Holy Friday, what is it about it that makes it holy and why do we see it as good? Isaiah chapter 53, and I'm just gonna read a few of the verses here, but if you're taking notes on your handout, you can write now number one, the suspicion. The suspicion. Verse number one, Isaiah chapter 53 says, Who hath believed our report? And to whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? When Isaiah is writing this book, just for context, this nation is in turmoil. Uh, This nation has already gone down a path towards towards godlessness, away from the Lord, away from serving Him, uh, is on that path to captivity in Babylon. Hasn't happened yet, but the outcome is inevitable. It's already been pronounced. All of the leadership was corrupt. The spiritual and national leadership, all living away from God the priests were pur- pur- purporting their own agenda rather than god's agenda and isaiah is writing this book literally pronouncing judgment on his own people when he gets to isaiah chapter 53 he stops and points out their suspicion in his words from the lord and that they have not believed anything he said at this point very passionate we see in isaiahs is where he talks about the wonderful counselor the mighty god the prince of peace that would come He talks about the prophecy that uh, Mary would uh, give birth to Jesus, a virgin would conceive and bring forth a son, call his name Emmanuel, meaning God with us. All of that is a uh, precursor for Isaiah chapter 53. And nobody is listening. And he asked the question in the first verse of Isaiah chapter 53 in verse 1. He says, who has believed our report? It's a sarcastic question. He's asking, why would you listen to God? Why would God speak to you? Why aren't you listening to God? Why would God even bother? Because the way that you're looking at society, you're literally telling God, don't bother. Don't bother. He said, who is the arm of the Lord revealed? Why is God sharing that message with his people? Which brings brings a great question to us. Why would God speak to us? We're not any better than the people were back then. We live in, in ways that are pleasing to ourselves just as much as they do. We're a perfect example of the people of God in the Old Testament. And we live those roller coaster highs and the deepest valley lows. We come in on Sunday and, man, everything's great and God is good. And then we go to work on Monday and it all unravels, doesn't it? And we see how everything is good and then everything is bad. But why would God speak to us? David asked a similar question in Psalm 8 verse 4 when he said, "What is man that thou art mindful of him? And the son of man that thou visitest him?" He rephrases it in uh, Psalm 144 in verse number 3 when he says, "Lord, what is man that thou takest knowledge of him? Or the son of man that thou makest account of him?" Uh, Lord, why would you even bother? Knowing what man is made of, knowing who we are, knowing us better than we know us. And yet God desires to speak. See, God doesn't have to speak to us. God doesn't have to use us. God doesn't have to bless us. But in his mercy, he chooses to. The sad thing is that we act like somehow we deserve his blessing. Somehow we deserve his goodness. Somehow we deserve Jesus dying on the cross. Somehow we deserve salvation. And that's how we act. But David prayed in 1 Chronicles 17 verse 16 a prayer that we should pray. When he said, who am I, O Lord God, and what is mine house that that thou hast brought me hitherto? He says, God, who am I? That old song, who am I that a king would bleed and die for? Who am I? Lord, why would you speak to me? He says, what is my house? Why would you want to bless and use my house? That's our prayer tonight. God, why? Not why in a bad sense, but God, we stand amazed that you would even bother. We stand amazed that you would want a relationship with us. What if we prayed that prayer? Who am I, Lord? Why would you bother? Why would you bless me? Why would you bless my family? Why would you give me access to your word? Why would you offer me salvation? Why would you give me a good church to go to? Why would you give me godly friends? Why would you bless me? That's the prayer. Isaiah is pointing out the fact that even though God is blessing, they weren't believing. God is speaking and they were not responding. So is that our story? When God speaks, what is our response? Do we say in our actions and our attitudes, God, don't bother? Why would He even bother? The suspicion. Isaiah was suspicious, the fact that they weren't even going to spot, respond favorably. But then, number two, we see the service mentioned in verse number two Whom is the arm of the Lord revealed? Verse two, Isaiah begins prophesying, foretelling what was coming. What the Messiah would look like, how he would appear before the people. It says, for he shall grow up before him as a tender plant and as a root out of the dry ground. Now, I don't know about you, but I've never seen a lot of stuff grow in the desert. You know, we say, well, pastor, cactus, they grow there. Yeah, but um, cactus is not necessarily something that we want to have in our home, in our front yards, and uh, enjoy. And man, aren't those beautiful cactus? Uh, You know, or cacti, cacti, plural. Uh, But it says a root comes out of the dry ground. It's a picture of the spirituality of Israel. Israel was dried up. They were not... Flourishing, remember uh, David painted that beautiful picture in Psalm 1 when he talks about uh, the tree that was planted by the river of water and it would have bare fruit and it would flourish. That's not what we see here. Uh, That beautiful nature scene by the river in verse number 2 is dry ground. Dry ground. The people had gotten to this place and they saw Jesus and said, why would we want him? Why would we desire him? It says, he hath no form nor comeliness when we shall see him. There is no beauty that we should desire him. But that's okay, right? I mean, at least Jesus' family would love him. At least Jesus' family would receive him. At least Jesus' family would believe in him. But then in John chapter 7 and verse 5, it says, for neither did his brethren believe in him. Jesus came, and he was special and unique and different. And the people who were closest to him didn't believe in him. And yet, that's how we find our lives. We see all the signs, and we see God work and God move and God bless, and we see him do some amazing things, and yet we say, well, that's just what he's doing for them. He's not doing, what, what have you done for me, God. Uh, how have you blessed me? And uh, what have you done for me lately, God? Yes, yeah, sure, you offered me salvation and a spouse and a home and a car and a Bible and kids and uh, a job and, all, and a church and all these different things. But what have you done for me lately? He's given us more than we deserve lately. Ray Ortland talked about our perspective of Jesus. And uh, this is a long quote, and I'll read it for the most part. But it's on your handout. be on the screen. But we say that we're following Jesus, but are we following this Jesus? The Jesus of the Bible. Because I would suggest to you tonight, based on this quote, that there are two Jesuses. Uh, two. Uh, not biblically, but there are two forms of Jesus. Now let's read this quote. Ray Ortland said, Our local deity is not Jesus. He goes by the name Jesus, but in reality, our local deity is Jesus Jr. Our little Jesus is popular because he's useful. He makes us feel better when conveniently fitting into the margins of our busy lives. He's not terrifying or compelling or thrilling. When we hear the gospel of Jesus Jr., our casual response is, yeah, that's what I believe. Jesus Jr. does not confront us, surprise us, or stun us. He looks down on us with a benign, all-approving grin. He tells us how wonderful we really are, how entitled we really are, how wounded we really are, and it feels good. Jesus Jr. appeals to our flesh. He does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He is not able to understand them, much less impart them, because Jesus Jr. is the magnification of self. The idealization of self, the absolutization of self, turning around and validating self, flattering self, reinforcing self. Jesus Jr. does not change us because he is a projection of us. He doesn't change us because he is a projection of us. Are we following the Jesus of the Bible Or what we want Jesus to be, like us. Just a reminder, Jesus never has been or ever will be like us. Well, sure, he came to this world and he lived for 33 years, walked around. But make no mistake, he was not one of us. He was different than us. He who knew no sin became sin on the cross. He was among us, but he wasn't sinful man like us. He became sin. And so based on our question at the beginning of the, the message and then the video, why is Good Friday good? So far, no good. No good mentioned. But then we get to verse number 3, and it gets, goes from bad to worse. It, there we see the sorrow mentioned in verse 3. The sorrow Isaiah foretells the hatred and rejection of of Jesus and how he would respond. It says he was despised, is despised, and rejected of men. A man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. It wasn't just something that every now and then happened. Uh, Grief was his close acquaintance. He was very familiar with grief. And what was our response? And we hid, as it were, our faces from him. He was despised and we esteemed him not. We didn't even give him the benefit of the doubt. We wouldn't even acknowledge how he felt. You would think that God coming to the world to redeem mankind would be something that we would acknowledge and we would give heed to and we would garnish at least a response of thankfulness. Jesus didn't have to step down from his throne. He was willing to. He didn't have to come, but he did. He knew what he would encounter. He knew what he would face. He was God. He knew exactly what was coming. He even prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane in Matthew chapter 26, verse 38. Then saith he unto them, My soul is exceeding sorrowful, talking to the disciples, even unto death. Tarry you here and watch with me. And he went a little farther and fell on his face and prayed. Saying, oh, my father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Now, you think about it. There are certain verses of the Bible where you say, man, it could stop there, but it didn't. And I'm glad that it didn't. Because he said, God, if it is possible, let this cup pass from me. That was the humanity side. God, this hurts This is painful. This is sorrowful. This is grieving. I know it's coming. And this is going to be pain beyond measure that no one had ever experienced before. Nevertheless, there's the God side, Fully God and fully man at the same time. Hurt like we hurt, but understood what we would never understand. And he said, nevertheless, not my will, but thine be done. You know... He knew that he would be betrayed by Judas. He knew that he would face the beating, the mocking, the scourging. He knew what the cross would bring. He knew what was getting ready to take place. Knew about the separation from God the Father. Yet in all of this, he still said, not my will, but thine be done. And how's that contrast to us? You know what we say? Our prayer is typically not your will, God, but mine be done. God, I, I understand that you want to do something, but if it hurts, I'll try another way. If it's painful, I'll figure out something else because I want my way. This is what brings about the sorrow in verse three, a man of sorrows. He saw what mankind could be and they had no desire. He saw that he told them, hey, if you're going to follow me, it takes a cross. And remember after that long speech in John chapter 6, all of those things that he said trying to draw that crowd in, what happened? John 6 verse 66, how fitting. Many of the crowd, many of the disciples, those who had been following Jesus up to that point, walked away, walked away. So much so that Jesus looks at the 12 who were left and said, are you also going to walk away? Hey, you guys gonna walk around, walk away with the crowd? Or are you gonna follow them? You know, Jesus died for us because it was the Father's will. And yet we struggle to live for Him because it's the Father's will. There is the contrast. That doesn't bring about a Good Friday feeling. But keep on. In verse number four, we see the surrender. All of this leading up to a certain point. Verse 4 Surely he hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God, and afflicted. Uh, Isaiah points out what Jesus was willing to carry on our behalf griefs, sorrows. You know, he's writing about the future, but he's writing in past tense. You notice that? Surely he hath, past tense, he's already done it, carried our grief. He borne our grief, carried our sorrows. Aren't you glad that Jesus' blood doesn't just cover the future, but it also covers the past? Both sides. Surely He hath borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. It reminds me of Romans chapter 5, verse 8. But God commended his love toward us, and while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He proved that love. By dying, before we even realized that we needed a Savior, Jesus had already come. Past and future. But how did the people look at his death? Verse 4, yet we did esteem him stricken, smitten of God and afflicted. He's being punished for something that he did, something he's responsible for. Remember, Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, For he hath made him to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. The culture believed and practiced that if something bad happened, you were bearing the punishment for your sin. Say, Pastor, how do you know that? Because remember the man in John chapter 9 who was born blind and came to Jesus for healing? And remember, a group asked Jesus a question in John chapter 9, verse 2. and said, Master, who did sin, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Now, we would expect the lost crowd to ask that. We would expect the world to ask that. But who asked the question? Those spiritual giants that we call disciples. The ones who had walked with him the one who had seen him do miracles, the one who knew that he was different. And they asked the question, whose fault is it, Jesus? Let me ask the question tonight. When you face trouble, whose fault is it? When you face hardships, whose fault is it? Well, you know, pastor, if they came to church more, uh, you know, if they tithed, if they were faithful, if they served, if they read their Bible, if they prayed more, maybe you're going through a hardship because God is simply trying to teach you something and maybe you're going through a hardship because God is trying to show you something and say pastor that's not fair welcome to reality life isn't fair if you take a deep breath you got one more than you deserve the fact that you are in hardship and you're still breathing, you're still getting more than you deserve. You see, J- Jesus answered in chapter nine, verse three, and gave the big picture. You know, sometimes uh, Jesus went micro, and sometimes Jesus went macro. Gave him the big picture, and what did he say? Neither hath this man sinned nor his parents but that the works of God should be made manifest in him. This man born blind, living his life to adulthood with this blindness. Why? So that God could reveal his glory in his life. Why do bad things happen to good people? So that God's glory can be on full display so that we can step back and say, man, it's tough, but God is still good. This is hard, and I don't know what tomorrow holds, but I know the one who's already there, and I know the one who's already figured it out, and I know the one who has the plan all together. You know, But we don't like those. Hey, Pastor, I, I don't like those hardships. I, I'm going to pray that God ends them quickly. Somebody wisely said, in shunning trials, we miss blessings. In shunning trials, we miss blessings. What would have happened if Friday wouldn't have happened? We wouldn't have reason to rejoice on Sunday. We had to go through Friday. Jesus had to go through Friday to get to Sunday. Paul said that if the resurrection were the only thing that we had to hold on to in this life, and if it wasn't true, 1 Corinthians 2, Uh, 15 verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, if the resurrection is everything and that's what we're holding on to and we're holding on to Christ, and if that's all a farce, we are of all men most miserable. We'd had nothing to rejoice in if Jesus hadn't died, if he didn't rise. And still, that doesn't sound good. Good Friday, Pastor, Good Friday, Holy Friday. But then we see a transitional word in verse number five. It is my favorite word in the Bible. It's the word but. Not that word, okay? Look at verse five. We see the sacrifice. Born our griefs, carried our sorrows, despised, rejected of men, man of sorrows, acquainted with grief, Smitten of God, afflicted, but. But. See, the word but transitions the thought. In English grammar, it takes the subject matter and switches it. Now we're focusing on something else. We were focusing on all of the sin, all of the things that we had done wrong, but he was wounded for something. He had a purpose. He was wounded for our he didn't have to die, but he did. He didn't have to come, but he did. He chose to suffer for you. He chose to suffer for me. He chose. He was wounded for our transgressions. That's six types of wounds that can take place to the human body, and Jesus faced every single one of them. Uh, The contusion to be struck by a blunt object when Jesus was struck by a rod in Matthew chapter 27 with a hand in John chapter 18. Uh, The laceration which is the skin being torn and remember he was whipped, he was scourged in Matthew chapter 27. Uh, The abrasion that is the rubbing or scraping of the skin, remember Jesus was beaten beyond recognition and then demanded to carry his cross. And as that wooden cross bore down on the bare back of Jesus Christ, that abrasion rubbing and scraping into his skin, the penetration of a sharp pointed object, the crown of thorns crushed down on his head, the perforating when something pierced the bodies, when the three nails were pierced into his hands and his feet, and then the incision to be cut by a sharp object. When that spear was run through his side by that Roman soldier and blood and water came out in John chapter 19. All six wounds Jesus experienced, every single one of them. Why? For you and for me. Every single time. See, it was our transgression. Verse 5, he was wounded for our transgression. He was bruised for our transgression. Our iniquity, the chastisement of our peace. It was our lack of peace, our transgression, our iniquity, our sin. But we can be healed because what he did. It says he was wounded and with his stripes we are healed. His stripes we are healed. First Peter chapter 2 and verse 24. Who his own self bear our sins in his Body on the tree that we, being dead to sins, should live unto righteousness, and by whose stripes ye were healed. First time in a long time. It actually sounds kind of good. All of a sudden, we have good stuff to talk about, which leads us to the best news, and that's in verse number six. We see the satisfaction. Was it fun that Jesus died on the cross? Absolutely not. Was it enjoyable to watch when Jesus died? No. But there was satisfaction in the cross. Verse 6, all we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way. And the Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. Even though we all had gone astray, we all were going all on our own way, God placed all of our sin on Jesus. God was satisfied with the offering of his son. The satisfaction takes place in Jesus Christ. That's what makes Good Friday good. The fact that God looked at the death of Jesus as sufficient payment for sin. The fact that in verse number 10 of this same chapter, it says, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. God was satisfied with the payment for sin. He was satisfied when the final chapter of redemption was brought to a close. That's why we celebrate every week our risen Savior. That's why we celebrate Good Friday and the suffering that Jesus went through. That's what makes Good Friday good. The fact that he is our Savior. And because of that, that's what compels us to remember when we come to his table. This do in remembrance of me. When we partake of the elements, we remember that we don't deserve this. He was bruised for our iniquity. Our, all of those sins were laid on Jesus. We don't deserve this, but Jesus did it anyway. That's why we come before the table and we examine ourselves to make sure that we're clean because my sin already put him on the cross once. It already bore him shame by going to the cross once and I don't want to do it again. I don't want to bring him to open shame all over again. Is Good Friday good for you? I'm not worthy, but I've been made worthy because of Jesus. It's his suffering. Have you accepted that gift for your sin? Romans chapter 5, verse 8. We already read it a moment ago. But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We could... Quote that one backwards and forwards. But what about Romans 5 9? Much more than being now justified by his blood. We shall be saved from wrath through him. Through him. It's not your goodness or my goodness or your baptism or my baptism or our church membership or our good deeds. I'm going to stand before God one day and he's going to weigh my good deeds and my bad deeds. And if the good outweighs the bad, I'll make it in. You're not going to make it. Because there is no way in God's heaven and earth that your good deeds are going to outweigh your bad ones. It's not possible. But aren't you glad that you don't have to stand before God and hope that my good is good enough? Because when we come to Jesus and we kneel at the cross... There is only one good deed that is recognized. And that was the payment at the cross. That's why we celebrate. That's why Good Friday is good. Because a good man died so that we could go free. Those times where we feel bad for Barabbas. You say, oh man, man, what in the world? That guy should have died. Uh, He got to go free. We have to realize that we were Barabbas in the picture. We are Barabbas in that illustration. A good man died so that we could walk out of our prison cell. A good man died so that we didn't have to go to the cross because we justly deserve the penalty, the full wrath of God. And Jesus asked the disciples, can you drink that cup? Can you drink? Guys, do you understand what is in that cup? The full wrath of God. And they said unknowingly, we can drink it. And Jesus said, guys, you don't have a clue. But he drank that cup for us. That's why we have a seat at his table. That's why we can come before His table, because He made us a seat at His Father's table. That's what makes Good Friday good. Heads are bound, eyes are closed. We're going to have a time of reflection and invitation. And during this time, or just, uh, I'm going to ask Miss Pat just to play something. I'm just going to take a moment to pray as we prepare for our time of communion. We're going to sing in just a moment together after communion, but the altar's open if you want to come and pray or you just pray there at your seat. But I want to encourage you to examine your heart. In this moment, we're getting ready to do something very special. When we come before the Lord's table, we're going to come before Him. First Corinthians chapter 11 talks about that examination process and making sure that we're clean as we come before Him. To take that step is a very significant moment. It talks about making sure that there's nothing in our life that would bring shame to the Lord Jesus Christ. Any unconfessed sin. And I challenge you tonight before we partake of this small little container that doesn't seem like much but has eternal significance. That you would examine your heart and life. And if there's any sin unconfessed in your heart, there's anything that needs to be taken care of, that you would ask the Lord to forgive you. That you would repent and make that right before you partake so that you come to the table clean. We're going to take just a moment and then we'll pray and then we'll move into our communion portion of our service. But right now, would you just speak to the Lord? And make sure that you are clean before you come to the table tonight.